Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, abortion is something that more people are willing to talk about. So today, an extended version of the show, you'll hear from 10 people about why they had theirs and how they feel about it. And I kept justifying myself. Like, my baby's really sick. Like, I didn't want them to judge me. You don't understand what happened to me. And this is my choice. Having an abortion after rape didn't undo my rape. It just prolonged my healing process. I think if we're if we're willing to take that chance and have sex, then we should be also grown up enough to handle the consequences of it. But you can't unring that bell. You know, I really was the driving force behind the, the deaths of my three kids. I always knew that God was going to forgive me. I think he was saying, can you forgive yourself? Plus a comedian on why she made a whole show about her experiences around getting an abortion. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. It feels like when it comes to abortion, either people really want to talk about it or they really, really don't. It's so loaded. Whether you're capable of bearing children, whether you want them desperately, or maybe someday, maybe, or never, ever, the concept touches so many parts of us. Our bodily autonomy, our moral codes, our belief in fate, the kind of consequences that we fear, life and death. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, people who maybe weren't talking so much about it before sure are talking about it now. So I posted on social media, asking to hear from folks who've had abortions. Today, you're going to hear my conversations with 10 people who responded to that call. For some of the people you'll hear, their feelings are cut and dry. For others, it feels kaleidoscopically complex. You'll hear from people who feel like it was absolutely the right choice. And you'll also hear from people who regret it including a man who now desperately wishes his partner at the time hadn't done it. And at the end of the show, can, can we laugh about any of this? A comedian talks with us about what it's like doing her stand-up show called Oh God, a show about abortion. Now, it's important to let you know that stories about rape and assault do come up in this episode. The phone number for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, is one 800 656-4673. That line is open 24-7. I'm going to start the show with a conversation with my stepsister, Janice Wolf from Madison, Connecticut. I've known her for over 30 years, and I did not know that she'd had an abortion. When she was pregnant, her fetus developed a cystic hygroma. Which is basically um, a fluid sac that's attached to the fetus. So what happens is where that fluid starts to get um, absorbed by the fetus. So it's replacing things that should be there normally with fluid. So um, ours for our baby was from head to rump, which means effectively, I'm sorry, I'm going to get emotional. Um, 
effectively every aspect of her development would have been impacted by um, the cystic hygroma. So her brain development, her heart development, lung, everything would have been impacted. So um, we met with a geneticist um, on site at that time. This is all through Yale. They were advising us to terminate because of the degree of invasion that this um, fluid was going to cause for the pregnancy. And we were right then in that first trimester component. So we were in a, in a good place um, to be able to terminate without too much extra trauma. I want to say, you know, trauma for everybody. <laughs> Will you talk about what it was like to have the procedure to have the abortion? Yes. So my, um, all in all, it was a very traumatizing experience, but not because of the medical procedure, just because I was terminating a baby that had been wanted. So that part was really hard. I remember the nurses being really nice and me being a total disaster, um, and just crying and crying and crying and not being able to, um, you know, and, and, and I kept justifying myself. Like my baby's really sick. My baby's really sick. Like I didn't want them to judge me um, for why I was there. Like I wanted them to understand that I didn't want to do that, but I felt like it was the only thing I could do. So, um, but I, I like, those are like very distinct memories of, of mine. And I think I still do it to this day. Like if I talk to anybody about my abortion, I feel like I, I feel like I need to justify it. And I don't really know where that comes from because I've always been pro-choice. Um, I just never thought I would be the one to have to choose. Like I, I didn't want to make the choice for someone else, but I didn't think I'd ever be in that position to, to have to make the choice for myself. So, um, but the procedure was pretty, you know, nondescript. I, you know, I was in a clean environment. I was in a safe environment. My husband was, you know, there with me until I was under, I, you know, everything was, I was being taken care of by someone I trusted and knew. Um, and then I went home to a family that supported me. And, and then we later found out that, um, our fetus had something called trisomy 18, which is they had, she had three trisomy. I say she, because they were able to find out after they did the testing on the products of conception that, um, she was a girl. So we named her, we named her hope. Um, I have a Christmas ornament for her on our tree, just like my other children and, um, and her birthdays in my calendar and, um, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, obviously I do it all privately. Uh, so trisomy 18 is, basically 99% fatal, um, and fatal within the first year and the babies never leave the hospital. So, you know, like you, you worry, you worry, you worry, they make the right decision. You make the right decision. Then we got the diet, the official diagnosis. We couldn't get till after. And I was like, okay, I can breathe. You know, we made the right decision. That was, that was the right decision for everybody. Um, and in some ways I feel selfish because, did I just not want to take care of a special needs baby? Was I afraid of that? Um, I don't know. I won't ever be able to fully answer that question, I don't think. But although it was a factor, her degree of pain was a larger factor. And to never leave the hospital, like what kind of life is that? So that was our primary focus, I feel. Um, or I'm helping. <laughs> but I don't regret having had our abortion, but 
I'm mad that I had to have make the decision at all. So how many years has it been now? <laughs> it's been 15 years. <laughs> 15 years and I'm still crying. <laughs> because you're a kind, loving yeah. human being who's doing the absolute best she can under circumstances she can't really control. How often do you think about hope? I think about her all the time. Um, I, one of my best friends was pregnant at the same time and we were going to be on maternity leave together and we were going to have this amazing experience and our babies were going to be a month apart and she wound up having twins and it was just going to be this glorious event and this thing that we shared. And then, you know, mine blew and um, she had her beautiful and healthy babies and, and then she needed so much help and I, because one of her babies had some issues, I mean, they were healthy, but had some issues. And so I wound up going there. And I remember my husband being like, can you do this? Like, do you feel like you can do this? And I'm like, I have to do it. And not because she's one of my best friends, but, but I have to do it to help me get past it. So unfortunately all her kids milestones are things I think hope could have done, but then I have to put myself back and realize we were never going to do any of those things. We were going to die within a cut. She was going to die in a couple hours. If she ever even survived a, a birth, um, she was never going to leave the hospital. She was never going to go to kindergarten. She was never going to do any of the things that I look at her, you know, my girlfriend's kids now and say, Oh, you know, they're in high school and she would have been, she would never have done any of those things. So, so that part's hard. Um, because they are a constant reminder of age placement um, for where she would be at this point. But yeah, and I have a plan. Um, your mom actually connected me to a support group that was being run through UConn Health. And I didn't know it at the time I started going, but everybody there had had a voluntary termination of a wanted pregnancy. And um, I just showed up because your mom was like, I think you really like this group. And I didn't really understand what it was. So a woman there had a baby that had the same condition that our daughter had. And she brought this plant with her. It's a spider plant. It's a variegated spider plant. So it's got the green and the white. And she's like, you know, it's super prolific. And she cut off all these babies and she was giving them to people as like a way to disperse her daughter's like love. And she told a story about the plant. So I was like, oh my God, I must get some of these spider babies. Well, they became a lifeline for me. And I grew this plant, which is now like humongous. And she's so prolific with her babies. And I have um, I have them all over my home now, her babies having grown. And, and <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. But she's my daughter. Like that plant, <laughs> that plant is hope in a bucket of soil. And I care for it. And I keep it in my room. And when it gets mites, I clean it. And um, like most of my other plants, they start to get crappy. I just dump them, but I can't dump her. And um, I keep repotting her and now she's just ginormous. So, but that group actually helped me quite a bit um, with just appreciating I wasn't alone, you know, and having people that were kindred spirits in that respect. When you heard about Roe v. Wade being overturned, uh, how'd you feel? 
I'm still in shock. Honestly, I'm still in shock. And I, 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 I feel so bad for like our grandmothers who worked their ass off to get this to where it was. You know, I have never, I was born in 1974. I've, I've never known a world without it. And it's healthcare. For whatever reason, you're aborting, it's healthcare. And I, I can't imagine, I mean, what effectively we're talking about is forced birth. So I, I can't imagine being forced to birth a child that I didn't either didn't want or, you know, medically wasn't going to be the best interest of the child. So I, I just, I'm devastated, devastated and powerless. Janice Wolf, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Emily Woodward Tracy of Manchester, Connecticut, was 16 years old when she had an unintended pregnancy with her boyfriend at the time. Here she is talking about how she found out she was pregnant. I went to the mall and grabbed a pregnancy test and took the test in the West Farms bathroom mall so that I could throw it away so my parents would never see it. And that was super positive. So I talked it over with my boyfriend at the time, and he decided that he should probably just start punching me in the stomach to see if we could miscarry because there was just not a real solid way that we could go ahead and be parents. And I, that part I agreed with. Like, I was 100% sure that I did not want a child at 17. I could not even process that. And wait, can I just um, back it up a second? He, you both agreed that one method of attempting to take care of this before going to a clinic would be for him to punch you in the stomach? Well, no, we didn't agree on that. No, I thought maybe if I jumped up and down a lot, like jumped off the basement stairs, like skipping three stairs and jumping to the bottom, like maybe that would work. Uh, But then he was like, maybe we should just try this then that wasn't really a good life choice for very many reasons. But so I'm real glad I didn't have a baby with that. That would have been just bad all the way around. Don't you think? Yeah. Will you tell me about what it was like going to the clinic? Yeah. I had a friend drive me to the clinic in Hartford and we went in And there were a bunch of people outside trying to get us to not go into the abortion clinic, which they still do that. That hasn't changed since 1997. So we went in. It was a brownstone building. And so they asked me a bunch of questions and did a test, a blood test to make sure I was pregnant. And turns out it was just close enough. Like had it been maybe a week later, it would have been too far along and I wouldn't have been able to have the abortion because I was so irregular with my periods. So I just wasn't used to skipping months. And so I literally found out just in time, the procedure cost out of pocket about $3,000, which we came up with in about 36 hours from borrowing from friends. But that was also my prom weekend, junior prom. I didn't want my parents to know what was going on. And we already had prom stuff all taken care of, like, you know, corsages and dresses and hair appointments and all that. 
And you had to attend school the morning of the prom or you couldn't attend the prom. So I had to go Friday morning to the abortion clinic. I left and took a cab back to high school, went to prom. My parents had let my boyfriend sleep over. So he slept on the couch. I slept in my room. And then we told my parents that we had a bet with another like group of friends to see who could who wasn't going to get up for breakfast the next morning. Like we wanted to all go out to breakfast and they, you know, we would said this couple wouldn't make it or this couple wouldn't make it. So we wanted to make sure we made it. And so we left really early when in reality, my friend was picking me up to bring me to Hartford to have the second half of my abortion done, which is what I did on the Saturday morning after my junior prom. I didn't realize there was a second half to an abortion. Yeah. They had to dilate me and then they had to have me come back. I didn't know either. I didn't know a lot about abortion at the time. When you heard that Roe v. Wade had been overturned recently, how did you feel? Oh, super, super pissed off, angry. There are so there's it's just I don't even know. I can't even put into words how frustrating and backwards it feels and anti-Semitic because I'm Jewish and in my religion, we respect the life of the mother over the child. So it really feels like a slap in the face like that. I, I don't even know. I, it's very hard for me to process. My whole life, my mom has told me, happy birthday. I hope you know I had a choice. She's right. She was young. She was early 20s when she had me, but I was born in 1980, so she did have that choice, and that choice was relatively new at that point. And she has been in the hospital since before Roe got overturned, and I don't think that I even have it in me to tell her. When you saw that I had posted about this and I was asking for people to talk about it with me, uh, why did you say yeah? I think it's important that people know that there are a lot more people out there that have had abortions than they may realize. I certainly wouldn't have owned a successful business and had the two beautiful children that I have had I had that child 25 years ago, no matter what. I'm proud of what I did for myself. I don't know. Is that wrong to say? No. It's how you feel. Like I... I considered myself first in that situation. And I knew that I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't care for a child at that age and I couldn't emotionally handle being a vessel for someone else so that they could be. Emily Woodward Tracy, thank you very much for telling me your story. Thank you for having me. Anastasia from the shoreline of Connecticut is the pseudonym our next guest is using. In her early 20s, she became pregnant after being drugged and raped at a party, and she decided to have an abortion. I asked her what was going on in her life before everything happened. I was getting ready to defend my master's. My entire focus for my life right there was to get ready to get my degree and start my life, just get ready to start my life. And I knew that having a child at that point was just going to not fit anywhere in the picture. I did not have a relationship with this man. He had no permission to have sex with me. 
it was a very obvious and easy decision to take care of it. Uh, he, he did write me a check. Actually, he didn't have any money, but he called his dad for help. And um, I basically said that if you don't do this, then I'm going to call the police uh, because you clearly raped me. You drugged and raped me. You drugged and raped me. Uh, so he confessed to his father and his father called me and apologized and uh, sent me a check. So his father paid for it. So take me to the day that you went to get the abortion. What was it like? So I was in central Indiana. Let's start there. <laughs> and thank God, my best friend from Connecticut flew out to Indiana and helped me go through this on my own because I didn't have friends or family there. She drove me there. And as we were pulling into the parking lot, there were protesters. There was a line of protesters that we had to get through. And uh, they were holding crosses and they had pictures of like dead, bloody babies and they were screaming at us and like holding like they. I remember this one guy like slamming a picture of a dead, bloody baby on like the car window and like screaming and pointing at me. And it was so graphic. And like I was just like, you don't understand what happened to me. Back the off. You don't know me. You don't know my life. And this is my choice. And every woman in there had a heavy choice. It wasn't like we're walking in and out like this is stop and shop and we're looking for, you know, bananas and oranges here. Like this is a heavy deal. So the parking lot situation was probably the hardest. Like I'll deal with the cramps and the bleeding and all that. But the people in the parking lot, that was the hardest. I thank God that Megan was there to help me through it that I could not have done it without her. The procedure itself, they did do an ultrasound right before and I was essentially right at the cusp of not being able to have gotten a, an abortion. Like I was pretty far along, which sucked to hear. After that, you know, there's a couple days after that of like cramping and bleeding and you know, like heavy period feeling a little bit of like, did I make the right decision kind of stuff? But is there anything you would have done differently? No, 100%. It was the right decision. When you heard that Roe v. Wade had been overturned, how did you feel? I just feel like that's not real life. Like this can't be real life. There's, there's got to be more to this. Like, we're, it's just the middle of something right now that's still in the process of getting itself worked out. I don't know how it's not over. It's not real life. I'm not accepting it. I'm not. I will not accept this. <laughs> like, keep going. What? A, no. Mm -mm. Like, I just want to stick my fingers in my ears and start yelling like la 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 until it's over. I can't. I just can't. No. How often do you think about your abortion? I think about it every April when I have the, um, the anniversary, which is uh, April 24th uh, is when I had the abortion. The child would be 18. And I message Megan and I thank her for her love and support and um, that I still remain firm that it was the right decision. But uh, life is all about choices, and sometimes they're hard. When you saw 
my post on Facebook asking, you know, if you've had an abortion, I'd like to hear your story. And you got in touch right away and you said, yeah, um, why did you want to tell your story? I think it's important to tell our stories. We need this as part of our healthcare system. It's We're humans. Let's grow up. <laughs> Get over it. It's, we need this. I can't even believe we're still having this conversation. Like it should not even be like, I don't know if I should talk about it or not. Like I asked for this, this interview to be anonymous only because I have one person in my family that I know if she heard this interview that she would be devastated. So I'm trying to like keep it cool for her. But honestly, like, I don't care. I would stand at a podium at, you know, in, in Bushnell Park and tell my story to all of the state of Connecticut. And I think more people need to talk about this. They need to talk about rape. They need to talk about uh, reproductive issues, you know, women's rights, all of that. It's all very relevant and needs to be at the forefront and in existence, not banished. Well, Anastasia, thank you for telling me your story. My pleasure. The phone number for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, is 1-800-656-4673. That line is open 24-7, and you can find more information on our website, rainn.org. Catrice Claudio of Bloomfield, Connecticut, may be a name you recognize. She's a producer at Connecticut Public. She had her first abortion when she was 23, just a week after an unplanned pregnancy. Later, she was dating a man who she thought was infertile. They found out that he was not infertile after she became pregnant, and then she had her second abortion. I asked her how she felt about it. I have no regrets about it. I think it was the best decision I ever made in my life. When my relationship with the person I did have a family with no longer continued, that was a very hard time for me to do it by myself because, again, two-family household, didn't plan on being a single parent. I was married, right? Like, I had all the things. I did it right. I had abortions to do it right. It still worked out the way it worked out. I was still on my own, and it was still difficult to be a single parent. And I think if I had four kids, I would have flown off of this earth somewhere. Mm -mm. As a member of a four-child household, I wonder that on a regular basis, how my mother, who was a single mother for much of it. Bless her. Yeah. I'd like to go back to the first abortion. You didn't feel really conflicted about it. Um, Were there any points in time where you reflected on that child and, and felt any sort of hesitation or grief? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, because hormones, right? Like, you're just like, dang, this is a part of me and I can do this. And maybe we can work it out and be civil. And that's how I found out that if I had the child, it would be just me. Because I had, I called the person and I said, you know, we don't have to be together. But is it possible for us to make this work and see if we can just raise a kid without having to go through this? And the answer was no. He did not consent. And I was like, okay, well, that's what it is. Is there any overlap that you have with the position of people who are anti-abortion? What I think is values change from person to person. And I believe that people who are anti-abortion value life in a sense that may be a little bit 
compared to me, a little more romanticized. I respect their desire to not engage those options. But I also hope that people who are anti-abortion, God forbid, never have to be put in a position where they have to negotiate their values for their own personal safety, personal decisions. If you believe in pro-life, that life is going to be a long one. It is not just in the uterus. What are we doing for the whole continuous path of that life? How are we supporting that life? And are we capable of doing that? I think in the moment it's save the seed, <laughs> you know, save the seed. But there are billions in each person. It'll be okay. There will be more. <laughs> Is there anything you would have done differently? No, not at all. I would have done it as many times as I needed to. And I did everything in my power to make sure that I didn't have to do it again. The people that I would have potentially had families with would have resulted in a different type of trauma that I wouldn't want my children to have. So I'm glad I did it. When you saw that Roe v. Wade had been overturned, how did you feel? My heart sank. I was heartbroken. I thought about my daughter. And I thought about what if she has to face the same decisions I had to face. And I know I'm in Connecticut and that's okay, but what if she goes to college and goes somewhere like Texas or Mississippi or Missouri, right? I want my children to feel like they are, they have some type of autonomy over the decisions in their body. And no matter how hard those decisions are, I want them to have the resources to make them safely. And I felt like everyone who has to make that decision no longer has that opportunity. And that was what made the pit of my stomach kind of just sink, you know? But I'm, I'm hoping there's a way to get it back to right, you know? I'm hoping. I don't, I don't have a lot of faith, but I'm hoping. Catrice Claudio, thanks for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Linda Storms of Sandusfield, Massachusetts, had her abortion after she had what's called an incomplete miscarriage. You'll hear her mention having a DNC, which is the procedure to remove tissue from inside the uterus. I asked her how she starts this story of this time in her life. You know, I probably started just by telling you how much I wanted a baby. And after five years of infertility and treatments, I finally got pregnant. And and at 10 weeks, we heard the heartbeat. And then at 12 weeks, there was no heartbeat. And the doctor diagnosed it as something called an incomplete miscarriage, where the cells were no longer viable, but yet my body hadn't yet expelled it. So he scheduled um, a DNC for a week later and sent me home. And I sat there for a week just waiting for my body to to expel this and it didn't. And so I went in and I had the DNC and um, it was safe. And I, I believe it saved my life because these procedures, if they're not done, could be very toxic. So I did go on to have another miscarriage after that. 
uh, I guess, a successful miscarriage. <laughs> and then I had two pregnancies, um, healthy pregnancies, two healthy children. But um, what I really think, you know, about Roe v. Wade, I mean, Roe v. Wade came into being right around the time I got my period in the early 70s. And so that was always an option. And the, the notion that it couldn't, it wouldn't be an option now for my children or grandchildren is, is devastating. I don't think this law has been thought through um, because if I, at that point, 30 years old, had to explain myself or produce medical records to validate everything that the devastation that went on, I mean, I'm still grieving over this, but I'm grateful that there was sound and safe medical treatment available to me. So, What do you think would have happened if you couldn't get medical attention for, for that first time? Well, in that instance, um, this, um, if my body had not expelled this, it could have caused an infection that could have caused death. It also, if that didn't happen, possibly um, infertility, and my children might not ever have been born. You think about that a lot? Or does it just only come up now and then? I think about it every time I go to the OBGYN and there's a question about how many pregnancies have you had and then how many have you seen to completion? And I understand that that's a medical question that everybody has to answer, but it comes up every single year at, at the exam, I guess, in my mind. Because this is such a sensitive topic for a lot of people, they don't talk about it. And so I wonder when I put the call out for stories on this, why did you say, yeah, I'll talk about it? I just think there's a misconception that people are marching into clinics excited to go get an abortion. No one's ever happy about doing this. So I guess that's my call out that no, no matter what the reason, no matter what your reason is for being there, it's your reason. And I don't think it's ever happy. Well, I've asked the main questions I wanted to. Um, is there is there anything that I missed you want to make sure you say? The majority of people believe that this is a, a person's right. And, you know, it doesn't affect me directly anymore. But it's important, I think, that people in my generation speak out, protest, and do what they can to get out. And mostly we have to vote. I mean, that seems to be the only thing that we can do to get our rights back. Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful because there's people like you who are doing shows like this and people like me who are speaking up. There's more courage out there than ever. And this is the time to have the courage. So yeah, I'm hopeful. Linda Storms. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Kyle. When Ryan Lindsay of Hartford, Connecticut, found out she was pregnant with twins at 25 years old after an affair with a married man, she really struggled with what to do. 
As a religious person who's currently studying for her master's at Yale Divinity, this choice was, well, multifaceted. I asked her what was going on in her mind when she found out she was pregnant. I just kept going back and forth in my mind. What do I do? What if? What if? Like the what ifs just were consuming me. Like, can I take care of this baby? You know, but ultimately... I made the decision to go forward with it. I remember thinking like, oh, I'm kind of having like life suctioned out of me. But I just remember feeling so hollow. And I think I wasn't like really eating. I was just like pretty numb in a lot of ways. And so I had an incredible therapist named Shanta who just was really wonderful. And some days she would just put pillows on the ground and I would just come in and sit and cry. And other days... We would talk through, you know, whatever I was thinking or feeling or trying to not think or trying to not feel, you know. So it changed my life. My twins' names are Joy and Mercy, um, spelled with an I, and their names came to me in a dream. And I carry them with me to this day. I just bought this necklace in Chicago that says mama in this process of healing I've also been in the process of claiming my motherhood and owning it and being proud of it Um, but they have been I think one of God's greatest gift to me because they helped me realize how deeply and desperately I needed to learn how to love myself I always knew that God was going to forgive me. I think he was saying, can you forgive yourself? Because it's not this moment in particular. It's really everything that has led up to this moment that has all of these choices that you have not made with, with loving in mind of yourself and safety and consideration. And so, um, yeah, so I, I'm glad that I had that experience because it changed my life. And as hard-headed as I can be, sometimes I really have to like hit a wall. But I'm glad because I don't know where I would have been had they not showed up (laughs) in my life. When you heard about Roe v. Wade being overturned, how did you feel? How do you feel? The word that's coming to mind is confusion. I don't understand why people want to control people. I don't understand why people want to put other people in danger. I don't understand why people don't realize how deeply personal and significant and nuanced that choice is from women who are raped or their birth control fails or having unprotected sex or are already mothers to two, three, four, however many children, you know, there's countless reasons why a woman would and and should be able to make this decision and it not be an issue. And so my heart breaks for women and folks who are having to travel across borders, across states, whose lives will be changed because they can't have the procedure, who are having their right to choose 
you know, forcibly taken away from them, whose lives will be changed, maybe not for the better because of this. I think my life was changed for the better because of it. So I don't like what's going on at all. You are a faithful person. You believe in God. Um, when you think about how God may see the decision to have an abortion, what do you feel? I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have cast abortion as like a creme de la creme, like top 10 sins. And I don't think that's fair or right. <laughs> I think ultimately, like, God does not want us to hurt, to be in pain, to suffer, which is a paradox because suffering was deeply integral to Jesus's life. <laughs> but I think it's like, there's a difference between like suffering because it's a part of God's plan it just kind of comes with the deal versus like suffering because we like make choices. So I think it's like, I think I suffered a lot because I made choices that were unloving. And I think those choices were not actually in alignment with God's will for my life. When you're able to make choices out of a place of love for yourself, everything moves differently, feels differently. Those choices have different outcomes. Right. And so I don't think God ever wanted me to hurt that way. I don't think it was God's will for me to have an abortion or to get pregnant with a man who was married and who did not have the capacity to love me or my children or my children or our, you know, our children. Right. Like, I don't think that was God's will. So sure. You can argue that, but again, I think it's like, once you get past that, what is the issue? Like if forgiveness is always there and available to me as a woman of God, as a child of God, and is always there and available to everyone else, then why are you terrorizing people <laughs> because of a single choice? Like we probably make tens of millions or hundreds of millions of choices in our lifetime. And so why this one choice is the thing that you choose to not show God's love, not show compassion, and to also say that you have to have this child well, that means that you, in a lot of ways, are trying to play God in somebody else's life because that's not your choice to make. And at the end of the day, who has to answer to God is me and whoever else has made that choice, not you. That's not your place. <laughs> that's not your life to carry. That's not your life to hold and mold. And actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. And so I think man likes to do a lot of meddling, <laughs> even Christians. And I can only speak from my place of truth, which is that, yes, I chose to have an abortion. No, I do not think that that was something that God wanted me to have to go through. I, I've never felt penalized or punished because I've made that decision. I've never felt like I'm less deserving of love or a healthy relationship or anything along those lines or of motherhood because I had an abortion. Like that's, if anything, it's been quite the opposite. It's helped me realize how much I do deserve love in a healthy relationship and someone who wants to love me and our future children. And God has been like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do. You deserve all of those things in full, not in piecemeal. Ryan Lindsay, thank you for telling me your story. Thank you, Kaya. When we get back, people who wholeheartedly regret the abortions in their past. I think when we are 
making a decision to have an abortion, we, we somehow think that like it'll turn back the clock. And, and that really is not what happens. I, I genuinely feel that I had my three kids killed. There's no sugarcoating it. You know, just uh, messed me up for a, a really, really long time. I'm Kion Wolf. This is an extended version of Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're hearing reflections from people about the abortions they've had. At the end of this episode, we'll talk with a comedian about how she developed an entire show around her abortion and why she feels it's important to include humor in the conversation. But right now, three people who wish they hadn't had abortions in their life. It took Amy Phillips from Montana 18 years to put her finger on a regret. She noticed that around late March, early April of every year, she'd feel agitated and on edge and she finally figured out that that was when the baby would have been born. She had her abortion when she was 22, after an unplanned pregnancy. She found a support group for people who struggled with their choice to have an abortion, which inspired her to create the Facebook group, I Regret My Abortion, back in 2008. It's got over 3,000 members scattered throughout the world. I asked her how she felt about the laws around abortion and how she felt about Roe v. Wade being overturned. I have come to believe that choosing an abortion is choosing to take a life. Um, I feel I feel strongly about that. And I don't think that God asks us to take a life. I think that he says that that's not what we should do. But in terms of legislation, I guess, I don't really understand why abortion is a governmental topic. <laughs> to have one or not to have one, either one. I think we have laws against killing people and people can be arrested for, for killing people. So maybe there was something around that that similar topic that came up and, and that's why it is so it such a heated topic. But anyway, so the legislation, the pro-life, the, pro, the pro-choice is not my gig. It is more addressed to people who are hurting because they because they did make that choice and now they wish they hadn't made that choice. I hear people talking about how making abortion illegal doesn't mean there won't be any more abortions. It means there won't be any more safe 
abortions. And so your focus, as far as I hear, is to help people with the pain and anguish that they may feel after an abortion. But for those who say, this just means there won't be any more safe abortions, now I'll have a different trauma because I'll have to go through it, but in a more dangerous way. How do you react to that? I I think the issue of people having sex without regard for what the possible outcome is, is irresponsible. And I think that somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost the desire, the motivation, the whatever it is to teach people who are of the age to have sex what those possible outcomes are and and whether or not they're willing to live with those outcomes. You know, if I were king for a day, I would say, I would say we need people to understand that if you don't want to have a baby, you don't have sex. That, that to me, that's what, that's what our bodies were made for. Yes, they were made for sex and pleasure, but they were made for, you know, then having a child and having a family and, and raising that child and, so in a way, I think that that argument, that concern is avoiding the core issue. I think the core issue is, you know, why, why aren't we acknowledging that if we're going to have sex, that one of the possible outcomes is to have a baby. And I, I think if we're, if we're willing to take that chance and have sex, then we should be also grown up enough to handle the consequences of it. I know that people listening may be thinking, yeah, but what about assault? What if it was, you know, it was um, the birth control method failed? Um, I guess I wonder, like, are you saying that no matter how conception happens under the most violent or under the most careless circumstances that the baby's life is more important. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You know what I'm asking? Like, I'm, no, I'm not saying it's more important, yeah. but I'm saying it is important. And I know, I know lots of stories of people who have been raped and people who have been uh, abused and people who have chosen to have, have their children that are a result of that. And, you know, I guess I think it's not the child's fault. And that child still, if God chose to bring that child into the world, then he or she has a, a lot to offer and has every, you know, has their own destiny, so to speak, to, to fulfill if, if, it, if they come to fruition as a result. You know, there are lots of times that we have sex that people don't get pregnant, right? And so, if if a child results from something like that, it's no accident. Um, and I and I do believe that child has something to offer the world. And I, and I've seen lots of stories where that's the case. Just so I understand more thoroughly how you see more nuances, when someone may say, "Well, my baby has a, a medical condition," there's a woman who I interviewed who the child probably wouldn't have made it to term. And if the baby girl did make it to term, it she would likely would have lasted maybe a day of suffering and tubes and stuff. Um, and so she had this abortion 
And I, I guess in a situation like that, how do you feel about it? Yeah, actually, I, I have a really good friend who was in that situation too, and and ended up aborting her baby too. But the reason she's my friend and the reason I know her is because she came to one of the support groups because she was just ripped apart afterwards by having made the decision to end that child's life when she she felt like, you know, God is a big God and God can heal folks. And God knows when, when a child is conceived, God knows how long or how short their life is going to be. And I think that, I think that we underestimate our God and we underestimate human life when we decide when it's time to take that life. I think that human life is pretty um, resilient. And in a lot of cases, they may surprise us and stick around longer. But even if they only stay around for a little while, um, I think knowing that you did all you could, I think that knowing that it was it was God's decision instead of us having to carry that burden of the decision of taking that that life, I think um, I just I see that as the better option. It's been forty years since you had your abortion. How often do you think about about it about that child? You know, I'm not going to lie that there have been times over over the years where I can dip into shame instead of regret, right? I think shame is a lot less healthy than regret. Um, and I, so I wish I wouldn't have made that, that decision, but you know, the Lord has forgiven me. And, and so probably 90% of the time I'm fine and I'm excited about my ability to, to speak out and help other folks through their pain also but there's there's times when i dip back into that shame and uh so especially as i take part in the group right because that's um something that i do at least every other day i'm poking my head in that group to make sure things are are going smoothly but um so a lot i think about i think about him a lot i do not have children after that abortion, not because of the abortion, but just because of the nature of, of uh, there's a lot that goes into the reasons why I don't have children now, but um, so I don't have, but I do have two lovely nieces who, who call me their second mom. And so I'm really blessed by them and they're, gosh, they're on top of 28 and 30 now. So, so I have those kids, but anyway, so yeah, I think I'm now and again. Well, I've asked everything I planned on. Did I miss anything? Or is there anything that uh, you want to make sure that you say so that when you hang up this Zoom call, you feel good about it? I think when we are making a decision to have an abortion, we, we somehow think that it will make it as if we had never been pregnant. Like it'll turn back the clock, kind of. And, and that really is not what happens because our bodies, you know, all the hormones that the women's bodies are built with in relation to supporting a life inside our wombs, you know, th those things, just because you've removed the baby out of the womb, those hormones don't automatically go away. Those remain with you. And, 
that was kind of a surprise or kind of a revelation to me when I thought about that. I thought, oh yeah, that's that's really true. You still you still have all of that in you even after you've had an abortion. And so there it just yeah, it doesn't remove consequences. It doesn't remove, you know, there is still fallout and there is still things to address even when you have an abortion. Amy Phillips, thank you for your time and your stories. Thank you for talking with me. Thanks for reaching out. I'll have a link to Amy's Facebook group, I Regret My Abortion, on our website, ctpublic.org slash audacious. Earlier, we heard from a woman who had her abortion after being raped at a party. Serena Dykeson from Indiana also had an abortion after being raped. She was just 13 years old. I was sexually assaulted by my uncle, and that resulted in an unplanned pregnancy. Um, It was traumatizing, um, to say the least. And so um, I kind of held that secret for a, a little bit just because I didn't know how to process that. And eventually I ended up telling a student on the bus Um, what had happened and she ended up reporting to my school and my school counselor called my parents and and told them what had happened and so they came in and they were in complete shock and grief and all the emotions that you would have hearing the news that your daughter has been sexually assaulted and I was taken to our family doctor's office and at the doctor's office, they did a pregnancy test, which confirmed that I was I was pregnant. So the doctor suggested, and it was actually the only option that he gave us, was to have an abortion. And that was the first time I had ever heard that word. I had no idea what it was. And I just remember my mom nodding her head that, that was the, that's what we were going to do. And my parents were in a waiting room and I was taken back to a room by myself. And I remember them just saying it's a clump of cells and if I was ready for the abortion. And at 13, I had no idea what they were talking about. I just thought we're at a doctor's office. Whatever is going to happen is going to be helpful. And I just didn't know. I was taken to a room and asked to undress. And the first time I ever met George Fawford, the abortionist, was when he walked in and he smiled and he said, this won't take long. And he began the abortion procedure. And I can still remember the smell. I still can remember the sound that I heard. I still remember the pain that I felt. And it was the most painful thing that I've ever felt in my life and I'm a mother of two and I screamed in pain and years later I would find my mom's journal and she wrote that she could hear me screaming and that she wanted to help me and that she was told that she couldn't help me and um, that resulted in her having a mental breakdown and checking herself in uh, for help for two weeks after the abortion, I was taken to a room and there was just a bunch of recliners. And when it was time to go, I stood up and I hemorrhaged everywhere. 
And my dad had to pick me up and carry me over his shoulder out the door. And we never wanted to talk about what happened that day because we were all very, very traumatized. You've said that your story is often met with misplaced compassion. Will you talk more about what you mean by that? Oftentimes, when abortion is talked about, people will say, well, what about the 13-year-old that has been raped? And I so understand what they're saying when they say that, you know, because it's like, man, you look at the rapist, very traumatizing. And if you have a rapist baby, like, wouldn't that be traumatizing? And I think what people need to understand is that having an abortion after rape didn't undo my rape. It just prolonged my healing process. Trauma on top of trauma doesn't, it doesn't heal, but it just adds more trauma on top. I wonder for those who may be thinking, you know, I had an abortion and it wasn't traumatic at all. There was no hemorrhaging. Um, The doctor was compassionate. There were resources. Um, Maybe if your abortion hadn't been so traumatic, you would feel differently about it. What what would you say to that? Once I, I learned what abortion was, I was heartbroken because of the fact that I wouldn't purposely take the life of another person and that really grieved my heart because I, as a little girl growing up, I always dreamed of being a mother and to learn that I wouldn't have that opportunity with that first pregnancy was just really heartbreaking for me because that wasn't my baby's fault um, of how she was conceived. So I think people need to just really understand that it's a grief. It's a child loss and child loss hurts. When you heard that Roe v. Wade was overturned. How did it feel? For me, I was excited, but I also know that we have a lot of work to do just because I know that women face unplanned pregnancies every single day, but also knowing how many women who are hurting from their abortion. So in my mind, I went there with it because I was like, this is awesome. I'm so thankful But also, I know that we need to have resources for women, and also we need to be offering healing from those who are hurting from their abortions. Why did you want to talk to me and tell me your story? Yeah, I'm I'm so thankful that you are giving this platform because um, I have an organization where we have women reach out multiple times a day, every day, who are just sitting in their pain and they feel like they don't have a voice because they feel like, why should I be grieving? That's a choice I made. Or they are sitting in a lot of shame and guilt and they're like, they don't know how to ask for help. Or there are women who just haven't made the connection in their pain point. And so Um, Once they hear other women regret their abortions, they usually reach out and they can make that connection. And they usually say, I've been so alone and I didn't know others felt this way either. Well, Serena Dykeson, thank you very much for telling me your story. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. 
We'll have a link to her organization, She Found His Grace, at ctpublic.org audacious. There you'll also see a link to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The voices of men in this conversation may, I want to acknowledge, be contentious. Some women think men should have no say in the decision, but some, like J.P. Pritchard of Hanford, California, feel like their voices are just as valid and relevant to the discussion. When he was in high school, he got his girlfriend pregnant. With his encouragement, they got an abortion. They got pregnant a second time shortly after and had another abortion. Finally, even though they used three forms of protection, she got pregnant again. And we were even talking about having names for the for the kid, you know, and but we felt trapped. I mean, there was nothing about this third pregnancy that was different really than the first two. And so it was almost like if we had this kid, we were invalidating the reasons for our first abortions. And when you're in that sort of um, the term is complicated grief situation, you know, your brain does all kinds of weird things. And so we had, we literally felt like we had no choice but to have an abortion for the third time. Now you fast forward a few years to me, thankfully getting uh, away from her. And I, and I mean that in a positive, because it was an unhealthy relationship to me being married and uh, pregnant with my first my wife being pregnant with my firstborn. Good clarification, JP. Yeah, nah, it was. I was never pregnant. Um, <laughs> so uh, my wife being pregnant with our firstborn and going to all the uh, obstetric visits because, you know, I really want to be involved and hearing the heartbeat of my firstborn for the very first time and being just completely elated and high-fiving the doctor and just being so excited being a new parent you know, and then realizing about 90 seconds later that this child is the same age or younger than all the ones that we'd previously aborted. Instantly taking me from one of the best days of my life to one of the worst days of my life in that moment. And that literally was the beginning of uh, PTSD related to that experience. It wrecked me. Um, and then paying attention to everything that happened to my my former abortion partner and all the devastation that it that it wreaked in her life, um, you know, just uh, messed me up for a, a really, really long time. When you look back on it now, do you wish you would have had children with that first partner? What would you have done differently? That's one of the challenges, I think, that, that as post-abortive people we fall into, we play the what-if game. Well, what if we could have, wouldn't it have been a great if we could have done this other thing or done this differently or made a different decision or known then what we know now, but you can't unring that bell. You know, I really was the driving force behind the, the deaths of my three kids, but it would have been, it would have been great to have those kids. You know, it really would have. You say the death of your three kids. Does it feel that stark? Yeah. The truth is, these were my kids. These were my offspring. Yes, I ended their lives. If I say ended their lives, that means I, I had them killed. If they're my offspring, they're genuinely every bit as much my kids as my two born adult daughters, <laughs> you know, are now. And so literally it's, a situation where 
I, I genuinely feel that I had my three kids killed. There's no sugarcoating it. When you heard that Roe v. Wade was overturned, how did it feel? I was pretty excited about it. Even when that decision was originally made back in 73, it did not match what the country wanted. It polarized us. And now with it being gone, I think what it'll allow us to do is start having some really good dialogues about the things that we need to have. The world doesn't exist as it did in 1973. The stigmas associated with being a single parent are completely different. But being able to actually say, hey, look, you know, a pregnant woman is in a, in a vulnerable state where she does need help. Let's figure out how we can do that. As opposed to saying, no, what she needs is an abortion. No, maybe what she needs is paid time off. Maybe what she needs is child support that starts at conception instead of at birth. You know, to get us to the point where we're starting to row in the same direction is a really, really good thing. So I was incredibly excited about Roe v. Wade being overturned. When it comes to the voices of men in this conversation, I know that some people think those voices are irrelevant and not only should not be heard, but... Yeah, um, no uterus, no opinion. <laughs> mm, mm. At the same time, uh, it takes two. And I know all the, circum all the circumstances are so different and this is all of this is touchy, but when you speak out about your feelings about abortion as a man... Do you feel self-conscious or do you feel challenged? Uh, how do you feel? From an outsider's point of view, when you say, gosh, you know, a guy, should, should they have an opinion? They don't realize how much of the guy's point of view matters already. Literally three abortions happened because of my opinion as a man in that situation, because I was talking to a scared, vulnerable young lady, you know, about what my wishes were. And I didn't even know my butt from a hole in the ground. And that's the way it is. The reality is, is that partner does have so much ability to influence and to cut him out of the conversation just ignores a reality of it. And the other side, it also does take his voice away. So I know a number of men that feel very, and there's no other word for it except emasculated by the fact that they could not protect their kid. You know, they uh, were in a situation where, you know, the woman decided she wanted to have the abortion against what he felt. And that sends the dual message of, of no, you're not good enough to be a father <laughs> with me. Also, you are unable to protect your own kid. And it really does cut to the quick of what it means to be a man um, if they can't be that. Uh, when they want to, when they are trying to embrace that. The flip side is, is that the, the reality is, is most guys are, they're flipping out just as much as a lady and they want to, um, they want to avoid this difficult conflict. And they think it's a, it's an easy decision. It's a fast decision. It's a quick fix. It's not, it's got lasting, lasting effects. You will always be a person that had a child in utero. Just like the woman will always have been a person who had been pregnant at some point. There's no unpregnant, you know, there's no unparent. There is, I was a parent of three children that are now dead. Well, J.P. Pritchard, thank you very much for telling me your story. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. My producer Jessica found this poem for today's show. 
It was written in 1945 by Gwendolyn Brooks. She later became the Poet Laureate of the state of Illinois and the first Black author to win a Pulitzer Prize. We couldn't find much information to give us context around this poem, which was written almost 30 years before Roe v. Wade. And frankly, we couldn't really put our finger on whether it was pro or anti-abortion rights, which is why we love it so much. Here she is reading it. It's called The Mother. Abortions will not let you forget. You remember the children you got that you did not get. The damp, small pulps with a little or with no hair. The singers and workers that never handled the air. You will never neglect or beat them or silence or buy with a sweet. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never leave them controlling your luscious sigh. Return for a snack of them gobbling mother eye. I have heard in the voices of the wind, the voices of my dim, killed children. I have contracted, I have eased my dim dears at the breasts they could never suck. I have said, sweets if I sinned, if I seized your luck and your lives from your unfinished reach. If I stole your birth, and your names, your straight baby tears, and your games, your stilted or lovely loves, your tumults, your marriages, aches, and your deaths. If I poison the beginnings of your breaths, believe that even in my deliberateness I was not deliberate. Though why should I whine, whine that the crime is other than mine, since anyhow you are dead. Or rather, or instead, you were never made. But that too, I am afraid, is faulty. What shall I say? How is the truth to be said? You were born, you had body, you died. It is just that you never giggled or planned or cried. Believe me, I loved you all. Believe me. I knew you, though faintly, and I loved, I loved you all. After the break, what it's like being a comedian talking about her abortion on stage. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is an extended version of Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, the final voice in this show about abortion and how people felt after they've had one is a comedian. Allison Leiby from Brooklyn caught our attention with the headline of her New York Times opinion piece, Please Laugh About My Abortion With Me. She had hers after a birth control failure when she was 22, and I asked her why she decided to make a comedy act about it. I started writing the show that became Oh God, a show about abortion almost immediately after my abortion experience, 
because as a stand-up, I write and talk about the things that happened to me and my life and my perspectives. And this is something that happened to me and it was in my life and I had some thought on it. But the other is that I, I hadn't had one before, so I didn't really know the ins and outs of what the actual experience was. All of that information I had came from pop culture. And even though I was very confident in my decision and I was very not scared of the procedure, I've had four back surgeries to date, uh, probably more to come. But So nothing was scary about going under for a few minutes for me. But I still had this idea in my mind that there would be something tragic or traumatic about it. And that there would be, even if I went in confident that I would leave a little sad or that the waiting room would be this awful place where everybody is morose and upset and depressed. And I found none of that in my experience. And my experience was an extremely mundane, I would equate it to a root canal, except that my root canals that I've had were much more devastating, you know, emotionally and financially than my abortion experience was and physically, to say the least. But I saw it as this very regular experience that didn't have all of the trauma and and drama that we use to talk about abortion, even when we're talking about it positively. And I thought, wow, no one is telling this story. Or I, I rarely hear this story. Not no one. I, I know that there are people that share those. But rarely do I hear the story, especially in comedy. And I thought, I think I can talk about this. And so I wrote five minutes of jokes that became 10 minutes of jokes that became 20 minutes of jokes. And suddenly I was like, I have 20 minutes of jokes just about having an abortion. I think this could be a full hour show because I'm seeing how much this experience and the way we talk about it and the way we think about it connect to the way we think and talk about birth control, the way we think and talk about periods, the way we think and talk about the conflation of womanhood and motherhood as the only identity you can have. All of a sudden, it kind of started to take shape and then, you know, months and months and a pandemic break and then many more months and months and months and help from other people in writing and figuring out what is this has finally become what it is, which is, oh God, a show about abortion, which is a joke because it's a show about so many things, about being a woman, about being a person with a uterus, about being someone who was pregnant, about being someone who doesn't want children. And it evolved very naturally from the experience. On June 24th, Roe v. Wade was overturned. You had a show to deliver in front of a live audience that night. What was that like? It was one of the most cathartic, joyful shows. There were big eruptions of laughter in a way that I was so surprised by. And it really made me comforted with how people are willing to approach the idea of abortion and approach how we talk about it and how I talk about it. I think about somebody who might say, this is not something to joke about. What do you say to someone who says that? There are a lot of people who say this is not funny. And there are people who will say, I am pro-choice, but I don't think that it can ever be funny. And I know that people who comment that haven't seen the show. Because the jokes that I make with the exception of one or two that are meant to kind of push people and be just a little a little winky edgy but overall the jokes in the show are not at the expense of abortion they're at the expense of what i thought it would be and what it ended up being it's about expectations and and realities it's about the little tiny things happening around it and the observations and i think all of those things should be funny or or or, or should be able to be funny 
Whereas the reality of abortion, I don't know. Is it funny? No. Is a root canal funny? Like, no. I mean, all it's a medical procedure. And if you need it, you have it. And you should be able to have whatever you need medically. So I don't know that the concept of abortion is particularly funny, but I think the experiences that we have with it should be because it shouldn't only be doom and gloom. And I think that the people with that real abortion can't be funny should see the show. I think that people who deeply disagree with abortion shouldn't see the show. I don't think that it'll change anybody's mind just in the way that I don't think anything can change someone's mind if they feel very intensely about that. I've been asking all my guests when they heard that Roe v. Wade was officially uh, overturned. How did you feel? Uh, and I'd like to ask you the same question, even though I I imagine I know. Um, and then I'd like to hear how you feel looking forward um, as a human being in the United States. When Roe was overturned, I felt exactly like anyone who believes in the right to abortion, which is I was devastated. And I thought perhaps that the leak would have softened the blow, but it really didn't. I really did cry a lot that day. I talked to my mom a lot that day, who is someone who also has had an abortion and is a very out, is a now outspoken person about that. And, and we were both just, I mean, we were on the phone for 40 minutes just talking about how gutted we were and how sad it was and how how did we get here? But also, of course, we know how we got here. And and it's which is all the more it's one thing to lose the right. It's another to see the systemic rot that feels impossible to overcome. And so obviously, all the ways I feel about abortion are exactly the ways that you would think this is awful. This hurts the most vulnerable people. This does not take into account anyone with a uterus anybody who's able to get pregnant, like nothing about their life matters anymore. And that is what this law getting overturned really says to the public, I think. Looking forward, most people in this country support access to it. And knowing that we, the people, want those rights protected and agree for the most part, and that this tiny cabal of misogynists and white supremacists and homophobes and transphobes are the ones who get to make all of those decisions for the 12 billionaires that fund all of their campaigns and and lobby. That feels so hard. You know, I feel so good about as a country that we are on the same page when it comes to a lot, a lot of the elements of reproductive justice. I feel some tiny wins are happening in small um, in some states where the bans are getting blocked uh, by their courts and, and that Planned Parenthood or the ACLU or a, another group is suing and like those suits are holding up some bans. And I hope that we can find those little wins long term. I don't know. I feel like abortion will go hand in hand with all of the other things that we need to protect and create real livable lives for the people of this country. And I think that, I don't know, burn it all down. <laughs> That's my idea. <laughs> I don't know how helpful that is for people, but that is definitely how I feel about all of this. Let's start over. Well, Allison Leiby, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. 
You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or check out all of our amazing episodes at ctpublic.org audacious. I'd love to hear what you thought and felt as you listen to these stories. I'm on social media at Kion Wolf, and you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.